Hello and welcome back to the SA Pioneering Podcast. In this episode, we hear from Tony Daniels, who shared a talk on the place of hosting guests at the Salvation Army's Emerge Pioneer Gathering in May 2021. Tony is the Director of the Community Services Unit for the Salvation Army and is passionate about quality community engagement and mobilising the saints and others to be equipped, empowered, resourced within the local expression of the Salvation Army to deliver the Army's mission through effective and impactive community-based engagement. His fervent desire is that the Salvation Army shifts its predominantly gift model approach to one that is intentionally asset-based, sustainable and underpinned by the simple methodology of being with, not doing for, or doing to, one of co-production. Throughout the talk, Tony asked some great questions that we'd love to hear your thoughts on. If you'd like to carry on that conversation, please join our SA Pioneering Discussion Group on Facebook. To find it, search SA Pioneering Podcast on Facebook and it should be there. I think that's enough from us. So now let's hear from Tony and his talk on the place of host and guest. Place, guest, and host. Wow, one opportunity. So uh, what I'm going to do is, in this first session, we're predominantly going to be looking at the place of the host, and in the second session, the place of the guest. Now, when you think about actually being a host, what characteristics come to mind? As you consider being the hostess or host with the mostest, this slide shows just some of those simple characteristics that some people may find useful or may not find useful in terms of an attribute in a host. Attentive to guests or unfocused on guests. A deep active listener or talking over guests. Well, proactive and energized or non-proactive. Very discerning or perhaps having low emotional intelligence. Now, this next slide that I'm going to share, this is a really interesting scripture, really interesting scripture, because it shows that here is the earliest reference that we have to the great future banquet in which the Lord God himself is inviting all peoples to uh, such a, a joyous final gathering. It sounds like, a, like an awesome end time party. It says, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wine on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees, and he will destroy it on this mountain of the surface covering. And the veil that is spread over all the nations, he will swallow up death, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And this is a, this is a fascinating piece here. Uh, I want you to stay with me here. Matthew Henry's commentary on this piece is, is fascinating. It says, the guests are invited and they are all people, Gentiles as well as Jews. There is a veil spread over all the nations for all are sat in darkness. But this veil, the Lord will destroy by the light of his gospel shining in the world. And the power of his spirit opening men's eyes, or we'd say now in the 21st century, men and women's eyes to receive it. 
And he will raise those to spiritual life who have long been in trespasses and sins. I love this thought of the veil will be destroyed. The veil will be lifted by the light of the gospel. And I think this is a crucial prophetic narrative of the gospel. Calling lost people back to God out of darkness or from their tombs and into emerging light through transformative, life-giving, faithful stories and narratives. The gospel is the best living true story in the world to assist in removing that veil that Matthew Henry comments about in reference to Isaiah 25, verse 7. So this is the work of a host, the prophetic calling to the opening of people's spiritual eyes. Literally taking or lifting off the veil by declaring to them the gospel vision over their lives, the kingdom vision. Speaking to those things which are not as though they are and calling things forth, namely declaring the world and declaring to the world the force of God's love, grace and compassion. And he sees the very best in people. Despite the way they initially present, let's remember that, despite the way we initially and persistently present, our host actually sees beyond because he's the author of the asset-based approach. Now, the sacrament or communion reminds us again of the importance of the love feast, of partaking in fellowship, not just with one another, but primarily with the Lord of hosts and being nourished in and through the partaking of his body and his presence. He has always been the Lord of hosts, giving spiritual sight to us as we seek to commune with him so that the veil falls from our eyes and in turn others. As hosts, then, we're called to be prophetic people with spiritual sight and imagination and vision learning to narrate new stories of hope in an overtly complex and often fearful and diffuse world. And of course, our host is the bread of life, the word made flesh. And Colossians tells us that he's the author of life. And Isaiah 55 reminds us the invitation from our host is for all peoples. Hoy, everyone who first Come to the waters and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And so our host provides spiritual food and sustenance that money simply cannot buy. The sixth chapter of John readily reminds us to feed upon him. And the fact is that the world is invited to that table. What an awesome thought. The world is invited to that table, to the banquet, through partaking of his body. And we, his resurrected people, carriers of his presence, of his compassion, of his power, of his grace, are called to compel all peoples to come and fellowship and partake. Now in this life and feast upon Christ, our Lord of hosts. It's not just about the end time offering in terms of that hope of joining that end time banquet. This is about entering in to the fundamental calling as God's prophetic people, a seeing people to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, thy kingdom come, we say, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, we are actually his servants. We would all say that. We'd all say we're his servants. And like the servants referenced in Luke 14, verses 15 to 24, it reads thus. I'm probably going to have to actually just, this is going to sound odd, read it from the word, because electronically, I'm always missing the last couple of lines, which is a bit of a pain, but nevertheless, it is the wonders of modern technology. And so I'll read it from Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. The parable of the Great Supper. Now, when all of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servants at supper time to say those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said, I must buy a field. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, well, I've bought five oxen. I've got to go and test them. And he also asked to be excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets, the lanes, the cities, bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded. And yet still there is room. And then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways, the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled, for I say to you that none of those men who were invited to my supper shall taste it. Now, this is fascinating because when Luke captures Jesus using this parable, Jesus is actually entering in to a 700-year-old conversation. In relation to the reference in Isaiah 46, uh, Isaiah 25, sorry, verse 6 and 8 that we read earlier. In fact, the Isaiah passage was approximately 700 years prior to. And that means that Jesus is taking part in that 700-year-old conversation, which makes the context of a parable one scene in a much longer movie. And so its importance in that sense cannot be understated. He is using the great banquet reference in his subsequent parable because he knows his audience. We might call it corporate memory. Jesus's interpretation of the 700-year-old foundational text narrative offer the analogy of the kingdom of God in his present day, which he, in his life on earth, inaugurated or initiated by setting the kingdom of God in motion. He is reminding the religious and the wealthy Jewish establishment in terms of their traditional rabbinic interpretation of Isaiah 25, banquet, he's saying that that's completely wrong because it's too exclusive, because they believe that the great feast would only be for themselves as high-class Jews, lowly, poor, socially excluded Jews, and especially the Gentiles, or forget the Gentiles, would not be able to access this table. Essentially, they have no entrance into the kingdom of God. This was how this Isaiah scripture had been interpreted by the Jewish rabbinic establishment for centuries. In that day, Jesus' inclusive interpretation 
couched in the parable in Luke would have been unbelievably hardened to swallow. His new and inclusive interpretation brings hope to all. And so again, the primary role of the host then is to be a prophetic storyteller as modeled by Jesus in Luke's text. So in a sense, it's about seeing and hearing and discerning and speaking new and innovative narratives of hope. That's the prophetic part because social inclusion seems, as we all know, central to what Jesus was saying about the table to his Jewish audience in the kingdom of God or the great banquet analogy. He was challenging the normative ideologies and rabbinic conversations that had traditionally been associated with the Hebrew text of Isaiah 25, as portrayed by Targums, which essentially are Jewish and Aramaic translations of the books of Hebrews, of the book of the Hebrew Bible, sorry. And when additional material is added, this makes this piece even more. And let me just show you what this slide actually looked like, what, what the, the rabbis, what the interpretation in the Targum of Isaiah 25 verses 6 and 7 were looking like. And you can read it. And then the Messiah of Israel shall come, and the chief of the clans of Israel shall sit before him. And the chiefs of the clans of Israel, sorry, shall sit before him, each in order of, their, of his dignity, according to his place in the camps and marches. It goes on to affirm in the same text, specifically referencing the banquet, that no one can attend who is smitten in his flesh or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. Wow. How uninclusive is that interpretation of the Bible? And so it was this very prejudiced, non-compassionate, barbaric, socially exclusive and elitist interpretation that Jesus was simply realigning to his kingdom values with his parable in Luke by revealing a new prophetic narrative around a 700-year-old story and thereby the people's fortunes within it. Jesus, as Lord of hosts, is prophesying and declaring, no more shall these marginalized ones be told the kingdom of God does not belong to them. Here we see Jesus' ability to prophetically realign centuries of narrow-minded, exclusive rabbinic tradition, as he declared, no longer was the kingdom of God for the few, but for the many. For all are invited, Gentiles too. Aren't you glad? And so this too is our job, to keep telling new stories and narratives of hope, compassion and love to those disenfranchised and at the margins of society, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of all humanity. This is what Jesus is really saying here. The kingdom invitation is for all. So let's start by his grace and the spirit's enabling, telling new stories as prophetic hosts. Most would say that a key skill of any guest is to be able to engage their guests with a good story. And we've been given the greatest story of all time to share with our guests, the power of our testimony and the power of the gospel. And so could Jesus' parable in Luke 14, knowing that in the mind of his audience, the 700-year-old root of that story, as referenced in the Targum, had a totally 
different view. Was this then the very early glimpse of an asset-based approach to humanity? Jesus declaring as Lord of hosts that there is hope and an invitation to a brighter and more certain future for all, but also an invitation into God's kingdom now. In God's kingdom, all people are invited by the Lord of hosts to have a place at God's table by virtue of God's amazing grace. This is awesome, awesome stuff. And so what about Jesus as the prophetic walking host, speaking new narratives, bringing new perspectives by the power of the spirit, and not forgetting that he is modeling all that we aspire to be as a resurrected people. And so I say this to you in closing. The road to Emmaus, so it was, while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew nearer and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so they did not know him. This is about removing the veil. How is it removed? And he says in Luke 24, 25, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have said. And then he says, now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, he took bread and broke it. And so I say this in closing. I mentioned the veil before at the beginning of this session in relation to Isaiah 25, verse 7, which says, and the veil is spread over all nations. The veil stands for spiritual darkness or blindness, lack of enlightenment or prophetic insight and discernment. We have seen that Jesus, in his capacity as host, is the prophetic storyteller who creates a new narrative, interpretive, dynamic, or insight. He demonstrates prophetic imagination. This is the place of the host, the prophetic challenge for God's people as they interact and fellowship with their guests to demonstrate prophetic imagination and innovation. Because the road to Emmaus gives us this final example, this incredible story that Jesus has the ability to tell a different story from the very same material others are using. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were, in fact, engaged in a life-limiting conversation. They'd actually lost their prophetic imagination. They'd actually lost their hope. Their hearts were weighed down by what they perceived as the realities that were facing them, and they were in actual complete disillusionment. But thankfully, Jesus's ability to illuminate, literally lifting the veil from their eyes of their hearts to understand that the way they're telling the story is viewing it through a clouded temporary lens. He does, if you will, in a moment, reveal a fuller picture. And he realized their hearts and minds to the true prophetic narrative and the story. They are indeed fellowshipping with the resurrected Lord of hosts. Just as he said, he renews their prophetic imagination and the veil of unbelief and disillusionment comes off and they partake in fellowshipping, communing, and breaking bread around a table with the risen Lord. Surely this is the, what I would call, surely this is the penultimate being with Jesus moment. Where the scripture says, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. They knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they found hope again. And they reported their hope and renewed faith to others. They became famous storytellers with their prophetic imagination reinvigorated. And I would imagine, just I'm saying I would imagine, 
<laughs> that they would have learned to become much more effective hosts after their intimate encounter with Jesus. And so, to conclude, the place of the host then is to keep intimately encountering Jesus, to know him, and to keep our prophetic imagination, creativity, and innovation alive, that others will encounter him too. So we've looked at the host, and um, I hope we've done a done a deep dive, and you've began to in your questions and groups um, began to tease out some of those things. And I think by some of the responses that that we've had, um, that's that's taken place. But in this next session, I, I really want to look at um, three or four things, and I know time is, is short. I don't want to rush, but I'm conscious of the tension between time and uh, breakout groups and questions and all that good stuff. But um, there, there are kind of three, th four things I want to look at. One is proximity. Uh, one is asset-based approaches. And the other is deep listening uh, and reflective cycles. Um, and I think there'll be some cultural relevance stuff in there as well. So <clears throat> here's my question. When you come to think of the characteristics to the guest, what comes to mind? Uh, do you consider yourself to be a conformist or non-conformist? Um, either way, there's a perceived code of conduct or behavior and expectations, and I put some of those up here. So again, well mannered. These these are all for for Andrew. Tidy, obviously considerate, um, compliant, um, and, and they're not so good characteristics. Rude, messy, inconsiderate, rule breaker. Um, of course, what's interesting about this is this concept of approved and non-approved behaviours. I find this very interesting um, because we as a movement are seeking to engage guests that sit across, I would say, a broad and diverse spectrum of non-conformists and probably a, a pluralistic spectrum. And therefore, there is no absolute, there is, there is no place for an absolute one-size-all-fits approach. It just doesn't, just doesn't work. And... What I want to say in, in terms of, of, of cultural norms, uh, I think the story of Mary, not Mary and Martha, I mean, not, not the one we talk about, one is resting, one is activist, but, but around the Lazarus, I think this is a fascinating story. Um, and the reason why, I think, is because she refuses to adhere to cultural norms or expectations. Uh, by the standards of her day, I would say she was fiercely and beautifully authentic in her and she was clearly in touch with her real self. And Jesus was in no way offended by this. Far from it, he endorses it. Uh, and it's because actually in that, she is a worshipper. She's passionately seeking um, him, and, and she's an extravagant individual. I mean, why else would she unreservedly pour out perfume at a cost of, of a year's wage? And this is very interesting to me, this verse verse 17 of chapter 11 of john it says this uh 
sorry, I want to jump down a bit. Verse 20, sorry, of uh, John 11. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. But Mary was sitting in the house. So I have on the uh, next slide a number of a number of things, sorry, which I'm going to talk about. But but for me, this this tension of her sittings is fascinating. I think it demonstrates in the sense that the church wishes to meaningfully engage its guests, but before it does that, it must recognize that they must be allowed to be the authentic and passionate and real non-conformist selves. They don't become to us, they don't come to us pre-programmed. Thank goodness they don't come to us pre-programmed. Uh, and, and we as a church are censored by, by Jesus himself to judge not with our natural eyes. And we need to engage again, I would say, our prophetic imagination as we seek to engage in the asset-based approach. How many times have you and I heard of the negative stories of, of our guests leaving through the back door because they feel judged or not heard or misunderstood as a passionate, authentic, non-conformist, and sometimes made to feel less. So when the church learns to add unjudgmental value to those that have been entrusted to them, only then will genuine and real and lasting transformation relationships blossom rather than transactional ones. And so I'm talking about transformational relationships blossoming rather than transactional ones. But this does require a shift in posture and so coming back to Mary about this proximity and posture, when she's initially told that Jesus is coming, she purposely remains seated in the house. She, so initially, she does not attempt to reduce her proximity or distance between her guest and herself. She appears unmoved. So perhaps Mary is ticked off. Perhaps she's upset. Perhaps she's still in grief and in a contemplative state. Can you relate to Mary's contemplative state? Initially having resentment towards a guest because they're not behaving in the way you either expect them to or would like them to. Mary knew Jesus could have saved Lazarus. She expected more of him, but on her own terms and in her own time. She had, in fact, prejudged her guests based on past experiences and expectations and was disappointed. But how easily is it for us, like Mary, to wrongfully prejudge our guests? Now, let's think about when Mary stands, when Martha comes back and says, well, the master's calling for you. And you think, oh, the guest is really calling for me. I better go and do something about it. She's told specifically Jesus is asking for her. And so she stands quickly. Or perhaps she comes to her senses, having gone through her contemplative stage. Undoubtedly, we too have heart issues that we have to work on before we can authentically stand to greet and engage with our guest. As we perhaps, and I say this only on occasions, just perhaps once or twice, have grappled with thoughts of those we perceive as perhaps, dare I say, more deserved or more deserving or less deserving recipients of our time, resources, practical assistance, or pastoral care. Falling 
Mary fully acknowledges the power of the asset. Mary fully acknowledges the power of the asset. She knows and verbally acknowledges that Jesus could have done much more than he currently appears. This is an asset-based approach, speaking to those hidden treasures and gifts in the hearts of our guests that are not immediately on display, those hidden talents and skills that your prophetic imagination can call forth. It's about believing that every guest has the transformative potential to be more than they appear or initially appear by God's grace. Everyone has some agency, even if you have to squint to see it, and it appears like a mustard seed. We are, remember, a prophetic people, and therefore we can use our faith, prayers, and prophetic imagination to keep speaking life, hope, and grace to our guests' inner gifts and be mutually transformed and enhanced by our guests' exploration of their individual gifts. Now, I've not put pouring on the slide, but pouring or kneeling, because she must have kneeled as she pours out the perfume and wipes Jesus' hair, she demonstrates prophetic insight as she adds great value to her asset. She absolutely affirms and acknowledges and acknowledges and praises this asset before her, her most precious gift. Her, her prophetic insight and it's a prophetic gesture, and it's worth mentioning again because she knows that the person before her is wholly worthy. We see in this one extravagant act that all previous heart issues, ambiguity, and prejudice is gone. Jesus was always more than she imagined him first to be, but she needed spiritual grace and discernment to see that, and so do we for our guests. Now, the wonderfully encouraging thing about Mary's different proximities and postures towards her guest shows, if we look for a moment and step back, it shows that spiritual revelation understanding is a process. She actually had to work through some stuff. And Jesus, like our guests, are in fact, by God's grace, always worthy to have full value added to them. But let's be honest here. Again, let's, let's just be honest. It just doesn't feel like that all the time. And the last time I checked, none of us had the Son of God around for a meal. So it takes time to learn how to implement asset-based approaches. It's not always easy to see the best in our guests or intentionally seek to acknowledge, harness and believe in their full God-given value or potential or hidden talents. It's not always easy. It's a challenge. And I, and I think... Because you know how scripture says, you know, Abraham appeared here and suddenly, you know, he went there and they went there. And it was months. It was months. So I just say this. I think Mary's contemplative state of sitting in the house lasted considerably longer than the text may initially make the reader think. She was emotionally wrestling in this stage and grappling with her true self. And actually, I think we should learn to do the same. And let's remember nothing in those biblical days really happened quickly and nothing in the army seems to happen quickly either and so it is about <laughs> it is about god giving us the grace in terms of beginning to dare to believe that we can go down a new way of working consider a new way of working consider a new a new model a reflection it takes time it takes god's grace 
So this is interesting, off the back of what we said yesterday, the central theme of our theology is, is welcome, and it's the theme of hospitality. And therefore, the welcoming of guests, the welcoming of strangers, is very important. And I put this up about refugees and asylum seekers because you'll, many of you will know uh, the core of Nick Coke at Rains Park, who is also the territory's refugee response coordinator. Um, and he said in a re recent communication uh, about the army's engagement in the theology of welcome, he said this, we have increasing numbers of asylum seekers amongst our membership, and there are numerous core that are engaging brilliantly with Iranians and seeing significant growth. The government's plans would make the life of asylum seekers who arrive in the UK even more precarious and treat them in a way that is far from compassionate and just. As Christ's followers, I believe it is right that we speak clearly about that. This is something that Nick Coke has said in the last few weeks about our ministry to refugees and asylum seekers. Now, I've got to say that I fully endorse and share Nick's sentiments around this. Of course, I would. He, 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 he ministers in our team. He's, he's, he's part of our engagement unit. And uh, for me, it's about the treatment of strangers, of our guests. It's about social justice and speaking up for the marginalised. It's about speaking truth to power because our treatment of strangers, dare I say this, I don't want to upset people, not really. Don't mind challenging you. Not really out to upset people on purpose. I think the treatment of our strangers determines how active the love of God is in our hearts. As Bethany Gibson said, and actually Andrew's already referenced it in relation to yesterday's meeting, the theology of welcome must go beyond words. Imagine the impact these new strangers are having on the life of the core and settings that are engaging in this particular ministry. It will be a life-giving, transformative process. It will be it will be powerful and, and Nick, if you if you if you want Nick Coke will come to to your core to your centre and he will talk passionately about the transformative power of engaging refugees and asylum seekers. Now I don't know if, with, if people know Alan Roxborough, um, but in his book Missional Mapmaking, he says the following about strangers. I love this hospitality is a way of practicing the eschatological future by welcoming strangers to our table as only guests. You can reference this back to the previous session, the Isaiah vision. You can also reference it to Isaiah 56. And I, I, I think this is, this is fascinating. He says the following, and I'll just read this again. The stranger is invited to experience the hospitality of God. Hospitality is a way of practicing the eschatological future by welcoming the stranger to our table as, honor, as an honored guest. Now, in the biblical story, and this is Alan Brooks was still talking, Emmaus has much to do with how the stranger can be the bearer of God's presence and how the stranger can open our eyes to God's truth. Now, for me, I think that's a super example of why the place of guest is so critical in all essay expressions. What truth is God continually revealing to us through our guests? What Kairos moments appear? Are the veils removed from the eyes of our hearts, or do we need to buy sal for them to help us see clearly? When Roxbury uses the term eschatological, he's really referring to Isaiah's great banquet vision 
And as I said, we've already touched on this. And so I'm sure you're now joining all the dots about this theology of welcome. And it can be termed as kingdom now and then stuff. It reflects and reaches and reflects into the eternal, into an eternal theme and an eternal dimension. This is a, this is a funny little slide. Deeply listen to your guests, day one. Deeply listen to your guests, day two. Deeply listen to your guests, day three. Day four, you may ask what they need. So this is another astute comment that, that, that Alan Roxburgh makes. Um, he says, hospitality is best expressed in the unspoken code uh, Middle Eastern people have about the stranger who comes to their door. And this is fascinating. I, I just want to share this because I just found this really fascinating. If a visitor comes to your door, feed him, rest him, care for him. Or let's just say, feed her, rest her and care for her. Only after three days may you ask her what she wants. Deep listening to our guests. So this feels to me as though this is a classic being with scenario, a deep listening space, if you will, that is another critical skill to be able to be deployed as we journey with our guests, creating welcoming spaces for deep listening and reflection. It makes us more culturally aware and therefore relevant both to the needs of our guests as well as the latent assets that they possess. It's not a one-way street. I don't know whether you've heard of this document. It's a Building Kings document by the Livability Charity. And, um, it's, it's a fantastic document. Angie's got a thumb up. That's awesome. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It aligns with everything I think uh, we would desire to be and purport to be, but this is lovely. So I'm just going to read this. Um, it, it's, it's their own model of, of I guess, what we call FBF. Um, and the first thing um, is, is about seeing more clearly. And it says, they say in the document, if we are to reflect theologically, we first need to understand ourselves and our groups, organisations and churches with as much clarity as possible. Having an awareness of the different experiences and cultures that have shaped our ideas about God and our community engagement can prepare us to listen actively to people who are different to ourselves. I think this is, I think it's just absolutely beautiful. Can prepare us to listen actively to people who are different to ourselves. The next phase is listening more deeply. Has to be a silence in it somewhere. Having gained a truer picture of ourselves and our situation, we turn to careful listening, particularly to different or alien perspectives. That's the term they use. The tendency of God to reveal himself in and through human experience most powerfully in the incarnation itself calls for careful discernment, careful discernment and an expectation that God may well be audible in the various voices of culture and community around us. As Angie said, spotting God, noticing where he is, partnering with him, thinking, 
how we engage with our prophetic imagination. Thirdly, living differently. The final phase is to begin reshaping our activity in the corners with what we have seen and heard. Shaping our activity, reshaping our activity in the corners with what we have seen and heard. And so my reflection on this, this wonderful model, this, say it's pastoral cycle or FBF model, is that cultural relevance and congruence is at the heart of it. It's absolutely at the heart of it. So what about empathy and cultural congruence? What about this? Just the land, the aeroplane. It says here, it says in Matthew eleven seventeen, and this is an interesting scripture, and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not so I've got to say this, the original contextual interpretation of this piece of scripture is that Jesus is saying to Israel, why did you expect John the Baptist and I to play games when we appeared among you in this generation? Why did, we, why did you expect us to, to, to sing to your tune or, or, or play games? Now, the study of basic biblical hermeneutics, and you know I've got to go there, always says the rule of thumb is to first prescribe to the most widely known traditional interpretation of a scripture before seeking to draw additional interpretive comparisons. However, please just allow me tonight, if you will, just for a moment to offer one of those modern day interpretive comparisons within this text and around empathy. Could it be? Could it be saying that something about the church's ability or inability to respond appropriately to the cultural temperature and sensibilities of its guests? If the flute is being played, then reasonably we'd expect you to dance in response. If we are as a nation in mourning due to COVID, we'd expect you to lament with us and offer hope and comfort. These are reasonable congruent expectations so my point is that being culturally savvy responsive and relevant to our guests is one of the key modern day social determinants that will fundamentally define the church's relevance shape and impact until the full consummation of the kingdom and the azar banquet for me cultural relevance is key